I think legal tech is one of the most fragmented software industries I've ever seen. When I was looking at the industry as an investor, thinking about do I want to go into legal tech, what I saw really confused me. I saw a lot of vendors that were software driven. So matter management vendors, uh, billing vendors, legacy contract management players. And then I saw these AI vendors on the other side that, you know, super sophisticated technology, e-discovery vendors, um, and uh, contract due diligence vendors, mostly in the M&A space for due diligence. But there was not really vendors that were combining uh, software and AI. And so the question to me was, why is that? Because if you go into adjacent industries like FinTech uh, and RegTech, those vendors combine software with AI. Uh, it's only in legal tech where we see such a large split. I'm Chad Main, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about the intersection of technology and the practice of law, where in each episode, we'll talk to a legal innovator about what they've been up to and hopefully get some real-world tips from them that lawyers can implement in their practices. In today's episode, we talk to Evisort founder Jerry Ting about his AI-fueled contract analysis app and also about looking beyond legal tech for inspiration and for customers. We also talk to the founder of Rain & Court, Andy Klein. Rain & Court is a secure services automation platform for law firms. A consistent theme you're going to hear throughout this episode is that our guest, Jerry Ting, seems to always have a foot in legal, but is always looking outside legal to improve what he's doing. As an undergrad at the University of Southern California, Jerry worked a little while at Yelp, but ultimately enrolled at Harvard Law. It was at Harvard where he hatched the idea for his startup, Evasort, which is an AI-powered contract management system. Although Evasort is a legal tech product, it was at Harvard that Jerry started looking beyond the legal industry to accomplish his goals. He looked for help outside of Harvard Law and went to the business school where Evasort was accepted into the business school's innovation lab. I actually had started a startup project when I was an undergrad. I went to undergrad at USC in LA. And the project there was, so my dad's an immigrant from Taiwan, but he has his own business in the US. So he's always writing letters and he's making spelling mistakes. And what I did was I worked with my roommates in undergrad to write a program that could basically fix spelling and grammar. Think about Grammarly before Grammarly. That's really when I started learning about natural language processing. Um, I went to work at Yelp uh, in business development before law school and was the first person to open uh, a, a account uh, with a Chinese uh, restaurant in Canada for all of Yelp. What year is this? Uh, this was 2014. Okay. Um, so I was at Yelp in the San Francisco downtown uh, office. Uh, that's where I cut my teeth on working with clients. And then I uh, took the LSAT, did pretty well on it. So went off to Harvard Law School. I was a 1L. And I was looking at the big law track and saying, okay, that's better for 2.0, but what do I want to do for my first year of summer? So I started talking to in-house counsel at all of the companies I look up to. Uh, I spoke to folks at Apple. I spoke to folks in uh, big banks like Goldman in New York. I was looking at both New York and California's markets. And by just getting coffee with them, a lot of these were alumni of, of the law school. Uh, I started hearing very similar patterns. You know, I would ask them, hey, what would it look like to intern in your office? You know, what does it mean to be a, a, a junior person inside of an in-house legal department? Because I, I thought maybe I'll go to the law firm route, uh, work with startups and uh, one of the many sort of tech-focused law firms, and then go in-house to a, a tech company. Um, and so I was talking to these in-house lawyers, and I realized that very simple technologies, not even AI-based, could bring a ton of value to these organizations. So it was during the summer of your, between your first and second years, you thought, hey, maybe being a lawyer is not where I should focus, maybe right. make a business? So I, I actually have an interesting background when it comes to what I did in law school. I was having these conversations maybe one, two months in uh, after arriving at law school. 
And I realize I'm hearing a lot of things <laughs> that if I heard before I went to law school, maybe would have reconsidered even becoming a lawyer at all. But what does that mean from an opportunities perspective? And so that first summer, I actually interned in B at BCG, uh, where I was a consulting intern. Um, so right off the bat, first summer in, uh, was doing consulting. And then my second summer, I worked in a law firm and I also worked in banking. I was trying to test sort of all the different opportunities that I can have as a young professional. But as I went through consulting, banking, and law, I realized that the problems that we're seeing when it comes to being able to review data and, and contracts is not just a legal problem, but a problem that goes across multiple different verticals. And so... At what point in your law school career do you decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to launch a tech company? It was second semester, uh, first year. Uh, I was working with the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project. Uh, that project, you actually, even as a first year student, you start working with clients under the mentorship of a licensed attorney. And so I was working with a partner from a law firm, uh, helping uh, entrepreneurs in the, in the Boston area get started. And one individual stood out to me. Uh, his name was Amingan Now. He was a PhD candidate at MIT, and he was building an automation solution for accounting. And so I went to Aming, I asked him for coffee. He was my client. I was helping him with um, some formation work. And I went to him and I said, you know, what you're doing in the accounting space, I think is quite relevant in the legal space. Uh, can you introduce me to somebody to just conduct a feasibility analysis? Is it even possible to do with AI some of the things that humans are doing right now in legal? And he's actually became my co-founder, uh, wrote our first piece of code when I was a 1L. So at some point then at law school, you decided, man, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to make this company, right? Yeah. You said you worked in the entrepreneurial project there with a law school, but then you got into the Harvard, like an incubator, correct? Right. Tell me about that. It's a very special thing that, that Harvard has. I think it's one of the only schools in the world. It has a dedicated co-working space. And instead of being at the law school, it was actually at the business school. And so Harvard's put in millions of dollars to build out this very large facility, three floors, basically providing office space to student entrepreneurs. And they surround us with uh, some of the best advisors in the world. Like right off the bat, I was able to meet with some very experienced, both entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. And so I was actually able to meet with some of the founding members of EMC, which later became a part of Dell for, for managing contracts. And you know, that, that was actually when I was even just considering they want to build a company. And what I heard over and over again at this incubation lab, it's called the Harvard Innovation Lab, was that uh, this is something that no one's done before. It's something that combines multiple different disciplines uh, between software, AI, uh, a little bit of process, and also working within a very mature industry like legal. But I, I think without the Harvard Innovation Lab, I could not have started my company. Uh, they gave us uh, Amazon credits so that we can spin up our first servers. Uh, they gave us a, a desk space uh, that we can go into and recruit our first couple employees. And they gave us a dedicated advisor uh, who actually was the CEO of a publicly traded software company uh, to work with us as an advisor. So they, they surrounded us with resources and really gave us a platform so that we can, even as students, be, begin building a really world-class company. That's cool. And so it's affiliated with the business school, not the law school. But at the same time, you are still doing your legal studies, right? <laughs> I was enrolled at Harvard Law, but it was a balancing act between going to as many classes as I can and, you know, flying to New York, flying to California, meeting with clients. Uh, so, so it was a balancing act. But yes, I did take constitutional law and all the classes that you would take uh, as a JD. And I got my degree. And did you do the degree in the three years? I did. Wow, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> that's, that's impressive. And the whole time... You're working in the innovation lab, working on the on the app. What year of law school were you in when you you started with the innovation lab? It was the beginning of second year. So that summer after one L, when I was at BCG, I filled out an application, and I said, "Hey, if I want to do this, I want to have all the resources uh, to surround me." And so it was a very selective process. I think 
over a hundred student groups applied and uh, Harvard selected a handful to, to allow into their, it's called the VIP program, the Venture Incubation Program. And uh, we were very lucky that we got in. It was me, my co-founder, and then uh, actually a classmate from Section, who the three of us became the co-founders. And we went to the first kickoff meeting, I think one week into 2L, and uh, we haven't looked back since. It was at the Harvard Innovation Lab that things really started to gel for Jerry's Evisort idea. Although Jerry came up with the idea while he was still in college and before law school, it was at the Innovation Lab that the company really got off the ground. I think legal tech is one of the most fragmented software industries I've ever seen. When I was looking at the industry as an investor, thinking about do I want to go into legal tech, what I saw really confused me. I saw a lot of vendors that were software driven. So matter management vendors, uh, billing vendors, legacy contract management players. And then I saw these AI vendors on the other side that, you know, super sophisticated technology, e-discovery vendors, um, and uh, contract due diligence vendors, mostly in the M&A space for due diligence. But there was not really vendors that were combining uh, software and AI. And so the question to me was, why is that? Because if you go into adjacent industries like fintech uh, and regtech, those vendors combine software with AI. Uh, it's only in legal tech where we see such a large split. And so that's where the new idea of Eversort came from, which is let's build a world-class software organization that has the workflows, has the reporting capabilities, is hyper-secure and is a centralized place to store all your documents at an enterprise level. But let's layer on the very sophisticated AI technology that we see in due diligence, that we see in e-discovery. Let's put the two together so that companies can actually run their businesses better. It's so interesting to me that companies in M&A will actually bring in a, a M&A contract due diligence vendor, analyze all that data, and then throw that data away and then go through the merger and now, now say, hey, what's in our contracts? You know, why not build an end-to-end -end solution? And so that's the broader vision for Eversort is combining AI and software so that we're not fragmented as an industry. And how'd you come up with the name? It, it, it was interesting. Uh, Eversort actually stands for Evidence Sorter because back in 2014, e-discovery was still more of a new industry. And so I thought, hey, that was interesting that lawyers have to go through so much evidence. Uh, I also was an intern at the Supreme Court in D.C., and so I saw uh, actual evidence being processed by the high court. And I thought, wow, what a waste of paper. Interestingly, Jerry's first idea for Eversort was not to use artificial intelligence to look at contracts, but to look at evidence used in the courtroom. However, he ultimately figured out that maybe using AI to look at contract clauses and help organize corporate documents may be the way to go. Eversort is an AI-powered uh, contract management system uh, that removes the need for human data entry. So imagine if you took a paralegal, you trained him or her to read every clause of a contract. That person can read a contract that's 30 pages in six seconds and pull out all the relevant clauses on the legal side and on the business side. So you upload a, a, even a scanned PDF, call it a master services agreement into Eversort, and we can pull out over 30 different fields out of the box without any training by clients. And so we can pull out things like who's the party name, what's the expiration date, uh, what's the indemnification clause, termination clause? You can actually compare that against a standard playbook and say, hey, this indemnification clause is actually too aggressive. Perhaps consider renegotiating in the following ways. Uh, so it's, it's meant to be an end-to-end an -end AI system for the legal procurement and finance departments of companies. And you say that the app works without training from the user, but then it sounds like, too, that if you want it to get more granular and do an analysis based on your, your own requirements, it can do that too, right? Absolutely. The hardest part in AI is being able to understand meaning behind words. And so that's where the AI component really kicks in. But once you pulled out a termination clause, uh, some clients ask us, hey, I wanna know every contract that has a termination uh, for convenience. 
right? Or determination for cause. I, I want to do a report and split my contract data into two buckets. At that level, uh, the clients can customize the software in an infinite number of ways because clients are always looking at different things from GDPR to insurance compliance to uh, tracking vendor contracts. And on the website before we met today, I did a little more digging on the app and it looks like there's a lot of integrations with existing tools. Tell me about that. That's, I think, a key differentiator between, I think, the current generation of AI companies in the legal tech space versus the legacy players. And it's so funny, in our industry, when I say legacy players, I mean companies over seven years, right? Yeah. The industry is changing so quickly that seven years ago, AI vendors were deploying on-premise, right? And it was a large enterprise architecture sort of deployment. Um, so in terms of integrations, what we can do is out of the box, we can integrate with Salesforce, we can integrate it with DocuSign, Data Rooms, Google Drive, Box, SharePoint. And what that means for our clients is that you don't actually need to change where you store your contracts. We can come in and work with your existing systems and provide an AI layer that sits on top of your existing infrastructure. So an example would be if legal wants to bring, wants to bring an Eversort, but they want to analyze sales documents and their sales team is using Salesforce, we can actually analyze the contracts that are inside of Salesforce and put that into Eversort so that legal teams can run their analysis, but the sales team might not even have to use Eversort. That's interesting. So let's talk about that for a minute, just so I conceptually I can, I can get it. So let's say that my company is using Google. Sure. Um, let's say the sales team has a folder in Google Drive of whatever the agreements are, sales agreements, NDAs, whatever they are. So it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, via an API, Ebisort then just goes onto Google, under the drive there, does whatever analysis the client asks it to do, pumps that information back out to Eversort and then gives you a result. Is that right? That's right. And then the next step might be take that information and pump it into Salesforce uh, to auto-populate Salesforce reports. So it's, it's actually integrating with the repository where it's stored, bringing that information, analyzing it, and we can take that information and actually put it back in different workflows for clients in different systems. And it sounds like your tool is a little bit different than some out there already because if, it seems to me a lot, of, a lot of the ones I've seen, you have to upload the data to the tool. That's not happening here, right? Yeah. Um, what we, have, we could do is we can integrate with, let, let's say a client has SharePoint. And they have PDF documents sitting in SharePoint going back 10 years. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to actually integrate with SharePoint, analyze those documents. Every time a client drops a document in SharePoint, it automatically gets analyzed by Eversort. And then they can log into Eversort and, and run custom reports uh, for very, very sort of specific metadata fields on their documents inside of SharePoint. So you can use SharePoint as storage and Eversort for analytics. Was that always the idea to integrate with existing tools rather than upload the data to, to Eversort? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> it was something that we learned uh, by going to market, by working with clients. And when we started talking to Fortune 500 companies, we realized that to be a, a truly horizontal player in this market, um, you need to play well with existing systems. There are so many different business units that surround legal. There is the procurement function, and they're using ERP systems and procure-to-play systems. ERP? Uh, ERP is Enterprise Resource Planning Systems. Uh, so think Oracle, think SAP. And the former chief product officer of SAP is one of our investors. And so we, we work closely to understand, hey, these are the different systems that surround legal. How do we make legal a catalyst for innovation? How do we let legal be the, the department that runs the deep analytics because they know the contracts the best? But take those insights and make that available to the clients internally that they're serving. We're going to take five away from our talk with Jerry because now it's time in the podcast for our Legal Tech Founder segment. But before we get to that, I wanted to let you know that Technically Legal is now available on Spotify. And as it has always been, you can also find us on other major podcast platforms like iTunes, Google, Stitcher, 
iHeartRadio. So if you want to subscribe, we hope you'll do so. If you like us enough, please leave us a good review. Also, if you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. And also, for every episode of Technically Legal, we have a dedicated page, which can be found at tlpodcast.com. On the episode page, you can find links to some of the stuff our guests talk about and get more information about them. If you're looking to find out more, I encourage you to check out tlpodcast.com. In this Legal Tech Founder segment, we talk to Rain Court founder Andy Klein. Andy's a former attorney who left the practice of law years ago to focus on more entrepreneurial pursuits, including investment funds, creating a marketing company, and of great interest to me, founding a brewery. Andy's latest venture is Rain and Court. That's a services automation platform for large law firms to launch apps in a safe environment. Think App Store for legal. To make life easier for both app developers and law firm users, Rain and Court uses containerization to implement apps. In a very rudimentary way, containerization is like plug and play. Containerization permits developers to put their apps into self-contained containers complete with an internal operating system that can basically be plugged into any environment and used. Andy, thanks for being here today. And Give us the elevator pitch for Rain and Court. Rain and Court's building a technology platform aiming to help law firms speed their adoption of new technology. The main focus of, of the platform is to help lead a migration out of the data centers that today really dominate the infrastructure uh, at large law firms and enable firms to move into cloud computing, but in a way that preserves for the firm's control over security, data protection privacy and stability that they today enjoy in the data centers and uh, hope to be able to maintain as they move into cloud computing. What that means essentially is is getting the software vendor community to adopt a new deployment model to bring their applications to market in what's called a containerized format that allows a vendor to build a cloud application but deliver it in a container, that's why it's called containerization, that the law firms can basically take down and run in cloud computing environments, but environments that the law firms control and contract for at Amazon or Microsoft or a third-party cloud provider, but not require the law firms to take their content and disperse it out to dozens or hundreds of different SaaS environments where the cloud computing environment is bundled together with the application and remains under the control of each vendor. And it's a consortium of law firms, is that right? To launch the business, we, we formed a consortium of major law firms with the goal of, one, getting the firms to help us figure out what tools would help them manage this migration into, into the cloud, and two, to help communicate the benefits of containerization to the vendor community because the vendors are uh, also in, in big, big winners here if they can adopt the new architecture and the new model of deployment, they can save time and money. The law firms can save time and money and the, the whole technology industry within the legal community can really rush ahead. And how'd you come up with the idea? Well, I, I uh, started a number of companies over the years. One company I started about 14 years ago in the ad tech space wound up over the years as a participant, uh, as a vendor on a platform uh, that serves today the telco and hosting industry and solves many of the same problems that the legal profession and other industries are now looking at, but in that case for the telco industry. And as as a vendor over many years on, on that platform, I, I saw many of the benefits of that sort of plumbing being provided on a, on a centralized basis to both buyers and sellers of technology. The, the application of that idea to the legal tech sector sort of started when I looked out at the universe and you know, sort of looking for something else to do. And like a lot of folks became interested in the emerging 
possibilities of the new generation of AI technologies and found myself thinking a lot about the legal sector, looked out at the horizon and saw just an amazing array of new applications coming to market. And that's what sort of triggered the comparison to the experience in the telco industry that I had lived in over over a decade or a decade and a half. Too many applications all fighting for time and attention, each one a bespoke implementation and presenting separate, similar, but but quite separate security and data protection issues. And so the idea of trying to build a, a service automation platform, uh, you can think of it as an app store in many respects, that simplified and, and took pain and cost and risk out of deploying new technologies uh, just made a lot of sense to me. You had an interest in the legal industry because you were an attorney by training in a prior life, right? A long time ago, yeah. I spent about six years as a associate at Cravath, Swain & Moore, but I jumped out the window in 1992 and then started the, the professional life as an entrepreneur a long, long time ago. And you said that Rating Court kind of serves as an app store. Do you have apps up there already available? Uh, what's the process? If I want to develop an app, how do I get it on there? How do law firms join? What's the, what's the whole background there? So there's nothing live yet. We have 19 law firms we're, we're working with today that are planning to launch the platform. And we have about 70 application vendors that are in process of working towards having their apps available on the platform. What types of apps just in general? Oh, it really spans the, the entire spectrum of legal technologies, uh, lots of AI and you know the machine learning, uh, data analytics providers, the contract review, contract automation, lots of timekeeping and billing applications. Almost every facet of, of, le- of legal practice is, is being offered and addressed with new technologies, and they're all welcome. Um, the law firms, uh, particularly the large law firms where we've initially focused, uh, are already today running between 300 and, and 800 applications, and, and it's going to grow and grow and grow. So I've got a hypothetical for you. Let's say I, I'm a vendor. Of, I've got a software company. It's SaaS-based. Why would I just not use my own instance of AWS rather than joining Rain in Court? What do, what do you tell that vendor or that, that, that SaaS company? So the challenge you have is 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 one of you know scale and relevance such that the law firms can take the time and effort that's required today to get their own internal security and compliance people comfortable with your environment comfortable with your you know ability to keep them informed when you change policies that will affect the security of their data and then if it's a large law firm that has financial institutions as clients then you need that law firm to take the time and effort to get permission of every client that has content trusted to that law firm that might wind up in your environment. And that's just a showstopper for almost all of the vendors. There are some exceptional vendors because they're so large and significant and they have so much credibility and experience that they're getting certified at the highest levels and they're getting blessed by every client that matters to a big firm. But that's a very, very high bar. Docker containers allow you to take exactly the same application you've built for your own SaaS environment and release it as essentially a a single tenant version of the multi-tenant application you built and let the law firm just figure out where they want to run it. And if they run it at AWS or, or at Microsoft or at Google Cloud, or they want to run it in their own data center, in their own cloud native environment, what do you care? Your value is the application logic. The law firms have a massive problem. They can't take content 
of a client and put it up in the cloud without permission from the client. So we're working with the law firms, one, to get permission for a few virtual private cloud environments that the law firms each would have complete contractual control over, stable, consistent regimes for security and data protection and privacy. And once those environments are approved, then any and all applications that are of interest to the law firm can be taken down once they're tested and run in that environment. So it's a massive removal of of obstacles for the vendor. You just said that it it takes out a lot of barriers for the vendors, but it also takes some barriers out for the law firms because they they can in turn you know hire their own developers hire their own AWS experts create their own environment but this is a, a way to streamline that process by working with Rain and Court isn't that right it, Yeah it, it absolutely it streamlines the process in the sense that we're doing lots of the heavy lifting on testing the applications evaluating the terms and conditions standardizing the review of the applications but but on top of that we have actually an automation platform that massively simplifies and reduces the amount of work that needs to be done to run and manage an environment loaded with with Docker containerized applications. We call that the container orchestration. And essentially, we can already today take what would normally be about eight hours of work to take a Docker container, scale it out. Uh, you build what's called a pod, which is, is, is how you configure a group of containers to work at the right scale based on the work you're trying to do through those applications. And we can, with complete automation and in two clicks, allow our law firm to take those containers already tested, configure them through a graphical user interface that makes it really easy, drag and drop, point and click, uh, set some parameters, and then uh, push the button. And and what would today take about eight hours of manual IT time to set up a new application, we have in a matter of seconds deployed to your servers of choice, whether they're Amazon, Google in in your own data center and through the platform, you'll immediately see all the monitoring and health check data and also the telemetry about the cost and the usage of the application, the cost and usage of the underlying infrastructure, and that feeds into the billing systems that the firms use and the practice management system so that they can actually begin to see and forecast how much it's going to cost if they use Kira to do this document review or use another AI program to do a large amount of work on a litigation. We're giving them automation kit to be able to set that up, run it, see the actual costs, and even estimate those costs in a, in a way. It's a lot of plumbing that will save uh, huge amounts, we believe, time and effort by automating things that today, even if you had the expertise in-house, would still be very manual. And we're allowing them to run all of those applications in whatever private cloud environments they, they want to bring up and, and move them around uh, with just a few clicks. That's really interesting and really innovative. If a law firm wants to learn more or a vendor wants to learn more, how, how can they do that? Well, they're welcome to, to you know send me an email, andy at com, and uh, delighted to hear from you know both sides uh, anytime. Let's get back to our conversation with Jerry Ting, the founder of Evasort. The people at the Harvard Innovation Lab weren't the only people that were excited about Evasort. Jerry and his team just raised some big VC money to the tune of $5.4 million. And not just from any VC fund. Amity Ventures and Village Global kicked in money in the latest round. And Village Global has some big-name tech people behind it. In fact, the biggest names. Bezos, Gates, and Zuckerberg. We actually raised our first round of funding when I was a 3 So um, my parents are pretty proud of went to Harvard Law School, so they said, if you're not going to be a lawyer, you better have a pretty good plan. Um, and so we actually had our first uh, set of customers when I was a, a 3L and uh, raised our first round of funding. We raised a million dollars 
uh, from a venture capital firm in the Bay Area called Amity Ventures. And, and that group we're pretty proud of. One of the partners there is named Peter Bell, and he used to be at Highland as a partner there. And two other partners there is Patrick Ying and, and CJ uh, Reem. And you know they're, they're a mentor group for us. Uh, so we actually raised our pre-seed round with Amity Ventures uh, while I was still in law school. And how many rounds have you done? We've done two rounds. And you just had a big one with uh, Village Global, right? Yeah, Village Global, Amity Ventures, and Sarah Ventures. Um, these three funds came together, and we put together a four and a half million dollar round. So, did Amity re up? Yeah, they co led. And so, it's got some Village. I know it got some big name partners: Bill Gates, Bezos, uh, even Zuckerberg, right? That's right. And so, how did you get the interest of you know a big VC fund like that? Because sometimes legal tech, it, it, although gaining traction, is not always sexy to a lot of the VC funds out there. So, what do you guys do differently? Back then, legal tech was not uh, a space that VCs looked at as much. Right? What we're talking about two years ago uh, now where uh, I went out to the, the venture capital market and said, hey, I think that we can use AI for lawyers. And back then, the, it, this was before the large legal tech investments that we've seen recently. And so there was a lot of convincing that we had to do. Um, I remember for one venture capital fund that we met, they actually went out and they called uh, some CLOs that were their contacts. And a CLO of a very large company said, it would be never possible in my lifetime uh, to use AI on contracts. And so there was resistance from the VCs early on. But as I went through and I said, hey, forget the word AI for a second. Look at exactly the business process of what a lawyer is doing. This is what a lawyer does when he or she reviews a contract. They're going in, they're looking at terms. This is what a lawyer does when he or she's looking for a contract in, in a contract management system to support uh, a, a business unit. They're going through SharePoint folders and they're looking for documents and they're they're looking for the master agreement. They're looking for the amendments. They're looking for statements of work. And fundamentally, it's a search and find problem. When you break down a business process to that level, VCs understand that they've seen this done thousands of times before in other industries. They realize that what we're doing in the legal industry has been done successfully in other industries as well. And so it was convincing them on the idea that legal is ready, one, for adoption, and two, the technology that we're building can actually serve a business function. So I guess you kind of answered the question I was just about to ask, though. You said it took some convincing. And I was going to say, you're not the only guy out there saying AI can help legal at many different levels. What was it that you think you did or your major pitch different to some of these VC funds that said, hey, I'm going to invest in Eversort. It's the type of technology that we built. Um, if you look at some other legal tech vendors that have done very well, they put the burden of training the algorithms on their clients. And so what, they, what they're coming in is they're giving them a, a module where users can upload examples of clauses. And you, you give the system enough clauses, it starts to understand this is a change of control provision. But in, in that delivery model, it's actually the clients who are training the models, not the AI vendors. We flipped that model on its head. What we have done is we've actually gone out with our initial set of clients and worked with our partners to get a very large proprietary data set. And we trained the models so that for our clients, they can just log in as if they're opening a, a Salesforce account or a Google Drive account. They log in, they upload their contracts, and the analysis uh, happens without them having to train. It's this pre-trained, out-of-the-box model that gets a lot of VCs excited because what you can start to see is uh, patterns for virality. You can say, hey, we're going to work with five customers in the insurance industry, five customers in the real estate industry. And what we can do is we can build these models where we can go from five to 100 customers without much additional customization. And it's that kind of patterns of growth uh, where VCs get pretty excited. I like Jerry's take on a lot of things. I like the fact that he looks outside the legal industry to grow his business. And another thing I really appreciate about Jerry is that unlike many startups, Evasort actually made it a point to find real paying customers as they look for money. 
They didn't follow the if you build it, they will come model that a lot of startups seem to pursue. We were very lucky to be based in Boston. I think Boston has a innovation culture that much resembles the Bay Area. But what we do is we were actually sending out emails to uh, companies in the Boston area to chief legal officers. And some of them would come meet with us just out of curiosity. And so we were able to convince a handful of them to start being our, our first set of customers. And it's really with these customers, with their contracts uh, and with you know actually deploying into a customer environment, where we learned so much about what is the value that we're bringing for our, our customers. And also, how do you do customer success? You know, when, when a question comes up, how do you support them? How do you build in customizations on that customer's instance that you can use for other customers? So without our first couple of customers, we couldn't have built that for sort. And while we're on the topic of customers, who's the sweet spot? Who do you target? So we don't work with very small mom and pop companies. There are contract management systems out there where it's per user. And it could be like one person inside of a five-person consulting company. That's not our customer. Our customers are usually companies with 200 employees or more and has a legal function. And beyond that, it actually starts to look quite similar. The way that companies look at contracts uh, with one lawyer looking at vendor agreements versus a company that has maybe 50,000 employees may be slightly different because that's usually a procurement function. But the data fields that they're looking at is actually quite similar. Our first client was a 500-person uh, civil engineering firm in North Dakota. To That's interesting. That's, yeah. very, that's very interesting. Yeah. So innovation from an adoption perspective is happening all around the world. You know, I, I talk to CEOs of legal tech companies in Brazil, in Europe, and other parts of the world, and we're seeing innovation happening and adoption happening all around the world. I really think it's, it's that golden age of legal tech. From that company to now, you know, we're starting to work with some of the largest organizations in the world. Uh, that are multinational. Everyone has data and contracts and there's different fields that they may want to track. But at the end of the day, it's a document with words on it. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Jerry always has one foot firmly secured in legal, but is always looking outward to other industries as he tries to grow his business. Obviously, legal is very important to Jerry and his company spends most effort talking to and trying to generate interest with chief legal officers. But Eversort also sees the value of its legal tech tool for uses outside the corporate legal department potential customer that came to us. Uh, the customer was the head of innovation at one of the three largest banks, uh, investment banks in the United States. And she emailed us on our website. This was, I think we we're six months into the company. And she said, hey, can you come to our bank and help us analyze loan documents? And I said, sure. You know, we, we, we've seen loan documents before. Uh, some of these are actually publicly available. And so we can build a training data set. And I asked her, I said, which department uh, you know, are you calling from? And she said, I'm calling out of the innovation department. And I said, what's the innovation department? She says, well, I report to both the CIO and the CFO. And the people that are going to be using this are actually, you know, folks on the sales floor who are negotiating deals live with customers. It's actually before those loan documents even get to legal. And, and that got me thinking. It's not just the lawyers who are looking at contracts. You know, sales folks are negotiating contracts on the sales side. It goes into sales operations, which is a whole separate function. It goes in for legal approval, procurement approval on the vendor side. And then it goes into finance and then legal again all over. And it's a cycle that happens. And so why only build a tool that supports legal? Why not build a tool that can go across the enterprise, but is driven most of the time is by legal because they have the domain knowledge and have the legal expertise on contracts. And this actually takes legal and puts them into the spotlight because now some of our clients are coming on now, it's actually the CEO with the CLO uh, who are buying Eversort. And that's a huge shift in our industry. Yeah, I agree. You know, tech's tech, you know, if, you know, why limit it? You keep mentioning CLOs. I mean, is that the main people you target when you're going out? We speak to a lot of CLOs. Yeah. Yeah. CLOs, AGCs. And how often are they saying, well, you know, innovation is not my thing. You got to talk to someone else in the legal department or talk to procurement or... It happens. It varies. It's kind of a personality thing at right. that point. But 
most of the times, I think in 2019, they've read articles about this industry. They've maybe seen podcasts like this one. And so they're at least curious. Very rarely do we say, uh, hey, we have an AI solution. And then, the, and then the lawyer says, we don't care about AI. Right. Um, the CLO might say, hey, tell me about what it does at a high level. How does it help me from a reporting, from a forecasting perspective? And okay, you're talking about specific fields. Here is this person on my team who's an expert on NDAs or services agreements. Can you set up a call with them? And then we do a call with them. And then they usually bring the CLO back in and say, hey, we're interested in moving forward. Let's talk about go forward steps. Well, hey, man, I appreciate your time. If people want to learn more about your company, where do they find you? We're actually launching a new website with a ton of information on features, how our technology works, customer success. Uh, so go to eversort.com or also add me on LinkedIn. I, I post regularly about legal tech. I, I know most of the journalists in the space and a lot of the other CEOs. And so follow me, Jerry Ting, T-I-N-G on LinkedIn. And I look forward to connecting. Well, that's it for another edition of Technically Legal. Appreciate you listening. As I mentioned, if you want to subscribe, you can check us out on Spotify, iTunes, Google, and other major podcasting platforms. If you want to get a hold of me or learn more about my company, you can email me at cmain at precipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at precipient.co. If you want to learn more about our guests or find out more about some of the stuff they talked about, you can check out the episode page at tlpodcast.com. Again, thanks for listening, and this has been Technically Legal.